This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Firefighters remain at the scene of a massive fire in England. A group of residents at the building had warned that there were dangerous issues uh, with the building. Uh, to get the latest, joining us now, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, Jeff Semple, and he is on the line with us now. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? Oh, I'm not too bad. Better than a lot of people who are standing around me right now. I can tell you we're just outside of a community center, just a couple of blocks from where that 24-story apartment building went up in flames like nothing fire officials here say they've ever seen before. And dozens of people have now gathered here at this community center, set up to support many residents who have now been left homeless. And there's also a center here for people who are missing loved ones and family members. And that list continues to grow. We're seeing names and faces posted in this neighborhood and online. But officials say at this point, you know, they, they believe at least 12 people have been killed. They expect that death toll to continue to climb, though, because fire crews are at this hour still inside the charred remains of that building looking for survivors. How can this place still be standing, uh, Jeff? I mean, we saw the, the horrific pictures uh, from last night. Is this building structurally safe? It is, according to us. Well, what we've been told is that a structural engineer, a team of them, are, are keeping an eye on that very question. And at this point, they do believe the building is structurally safe. You're right, though, for hours overnight. That was a big concern. They were worried the whole building was about to come down in what is a very, very populated neighborhood, a sprawling social housing complex of more than a 1,000 people. Uh, at this point, though, we've been given assurances that they do believe that the building is structurally sound. Uh, fire crews are inside right now, and we are, as I say, just a couple of blocks away. The cordon not very large, certainly suggesting that they believe the building at least is expected to keep standing, what's left of it anyway. Uh, so uh, what what was going through the minds of people in that city last night as this building is lighting up the sky? I mean, considering what London has been through in the last few weeks, I mean, my goodness, how much more can they take? Well, no kidding. And that is a refrain we've heard over and over here, just when will the bad news stop? This country has been struck by three terrorist attacks in the last three months, and now the largest fire that London's fire chief in her 30 years says she's ever seen. Uh, people here were very relieved to hear the news that they don't believe at this point that the fire was deliberately set. But there are plenty of questions, of course, about what might have caused it and what might have allowed it to spread. I mean, the, the, that's the biggest concern, I think, and the biggest question for investigators is that the fire broke out on one of the lower floors, the fourth floor, we believe, but then it spread rapidly up through the other floors. At, at, when the fire first started, residents in the upper floors were told to stay where they were, that fire crews would be in to rescue them, that they believed, sounded confident that they would get the fire under control. And as we've seen from those unbelievable pictures, that did not happen. And what happened instead is that many residents who had been told to stay in their apartments ended up being trapped in their apartments. We heard horrifying stories, witnesses describing watching their neighbors trapped above as they screamed for help from the windows. Some of them are holding up their children in desperation. Others even jumping for their lives out of their windows to the ground below as their apartments were engulfed in flames. Oh, my. Um, we've heard that this building uh, was built in about 1974. It had had some recent uh, renovations uh, to it. But what about the reports of lack of fire precautions such as exits, stairways, uh, even alarms? Yeah, I have to say we've heard quite a laundry list of concerns uh, as it pertains to the fire safety of that building. As I mentioned, it is social housing, and uh, it seems every resident we've spoken with here, dozens of them, saying that they had 
long been concerned, and many of them had long voiced those concerns for a number of years about a range of problems with the buildings they felt made it no longer fire safe and no longer up to standard. Uh, those renovations you mentioned, pretty significant multi-million dollar renovations that happened over the past couple of years. They finished last year. Part of those renovations reportedly included removing the fire safeguards of the building. Now, those were supposed to be replaced, uh, but at this point, we can only speculate as to what the cause was. But we have heard from certainly a number of experts who have said that, you know, fires do happen, of course, but for one to have spread this quickly suggests that something went seriously, seriously wrong. Exactly. And I mean, when you think of how these buildings are constructed, and again, if it was built in the 1970s, it's not like it's that old of a structure uh, as far as buildings go. Uh, At the end of the day, is there any idea how this did spread so fast? No. And I mean, we can only speculate at this point, I'm afraid. We've heard, uh, you know, sort of a litany of of theories um, about, but, uh, you know, we've heard of, you know, new boilers that were erected. Um, new rainproof coatings that were placed on the exterior of the building that might have, you know, not, they were supposed to come with brakes to allow for fire safety, but perhaps not. Perhaps, you know, there are a number of, of different theories here, but absolutely nothing confirmed beyond the fact that officials don't believe that this was deliberately said at this point, you know, and they have, the investigation is in the early hours, of course. London's mayor has been out in the British press reacting, saying he is very concerned by these reports that he has heard that there will be a full investigation. But at this point, the focus is still on what remains a search and rescue mission at this hour. So, Jeff, what about other buildings? You said this was uh, a housing complex, social housing complex. Uh, What about other buildings that are similar to this and maybe in similar condition? Well, that is exactly what we've heard from uh, British officials, those concerns about, you know, now wanting to take a close look at those buildings. Because, as I say, this is part of a sprawling social housing complex in a very populated area of the city. It's only about a 20, 30 minute drive from central London. Uh, so very crowded, a lot of buildings just like this one in this area. So they will now be taking another closer look at those to make sure that they're safe. Um, but again, you know, at this point, people sort of in, absolutely stunned about the fact that in a city like London, a world class city, of course, that something like this could happen given the fire regulations that are in place. Um, you know, there were no, there was no fire alarm in this building. There were no working sprinklers in this building either. And that, in fact, had been a source of debate uh, up to the levels of Westminster, in fact, over the past couple of years about whether they should be more strongly enforcing having sprinklers in large apartment buildings like this one. But nothing ever came of that. Uh, and, you know, it remains to be seen whether that would have had an impact in this case. We don't know. The focus now, though, as I say, on these questions, as we're asking them to officials, but they're saying the answers will have to wait. Uh, at this point, the focus is on the missing and hopefully on the survivors who remain inside at this hour. So what are what is happening on the scene now? Are they literally going through this place room by room? From what we've seen, that's exactly what they're doing. And it's uh, talk about a painstaking task. We've heard that there are about 120 units in this apartment building overall, many of them, you know, three, four bedrooms, uh, so home to a lot of families. Uh, and in fact, young children, including a 12-year-old girl, are among the missing. So at this point, you know, fire crews are doing that painstaking work. And up until just an hour or so ago, incredibly, the building was not only smoldering, but we were also still seeing flames bursting out of the windows at certain points, which is incredible when you consider now we are, what, 15 hours later since the fire started. Um, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Here, just behind me. I have to tell you, we're as I said, we're we're just outside of uh, the community center here, and we just heard some screams in the last few minutes. Oh no! It looks like another family has gotten uh, the bad news here, um, and it's sort of been a, a steady stream of bad news all day from family members who have been gathering here at the community center looking for answers, and they are screaming and shouting in front of me. There, one of the cameramen has just been assaulted. And the camera. Oh my God! The camera's just been broken here in front of me. It's a bit of chaos is erupting here a little bit. Uh, one of the families sort of broke down in tears. One of the cameramen here, there are many of us, of course, started filming. That camera was then grabbed and smashed on the pavement here just in front of us, literally just steps in front of us here. Police are now yelling at the crowd to calm down. Oh, my. I mean, it gives you a sense of just how, how tense the situation is. The emotion running very high. So police are here now. They seem to have separated the journalists from the uh, from the cameraman who were filming. But it's just an unimaginable nightmare for these people who have been sitting here waiting to hear news about their loved ones and then get the bad news. And unfortunately, given a high-profile story like this, the cameras are everywhere. Jeff, do you have any idea how many people are missing? We don't, and that's because you know, police admitted not long ago that they don't know how many people are missing. Uh, we've just... It just speaks to the fact that uh, so many people inside, and that's why, you know, we've heard the latest death toll is 12, but, you know, certainly residents are worried that it could climb much, much higher than that, given the number of people that are missing. We've heard names and seen faces, several of them, and, you know, at this point, they're, they're all, you know, a lot of anecdotes from people here on the ground. I spoke to one uh, older gentleman here just a short while ago whose brother-in-law is missing, his brother-in-law's wife is missing, and their three children are missing. I mean, we we're talking about whole families here that have gone missing. Prospect isn't good. And it certainly sounds like, uh, obviously, with the concerns that were expressed before the fire, that that has now turned into anger. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, you know, people are, obviously, we've just seen some evidence of that here in the last few minutes of absolute you know, anger and people furious and emotions boiling over. Um, and people are very angry, especially, you know, you consider just how, uh, sorry, we're just keeping an eye on things in front of us to make sure that nope. uh, we're all right where we're standing here. It was very tense. We have people scuffling with each other. We have police. We have some reporters in the mix here. Uh, I was just watching a crowd of what looks like uh, almost 100 people. Uh, and there was serious commotion here with people shouting. Uh, you know, and I think the fact that you just, you know, you might you might expect to hear, a, you know, anecdote or two about, you know, after something like this about a resident who had expressed concerns about the fire or the potential for a fire in a building, but we have just so many of them. It sounds like it was sort of a, a well-known common concern that this building might be at risk of a fire and that emergency crews might not be able to access it in time. Uh, a long list of, of reasons why, but, uh, you know, and it, it, it is remarkable just how certain people were that this building was not fire safe, and we seem to have seen evidence of it overnight. So the people that are around you now, Jeff, are those people that are looking for information about loved ones? Uh, they are, yes, for the most part. Um, we're being told to move back here, so you have to bear with me. Yep. Um, people around us now are mostly uh, residents who have been coming to, you know, look for everything from blankets and clothing, water, food, even just a place to rest their head at this community center here. And um, others are, as I mentioned, in this 
or trying to get some information from their loved one about their loved ones, about the many missing. Um, so it is a very tense emotional combination here. And as, we, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that combination almost exploded here in front of our very eyes. And it is still uh, happening right now. It's hard to tell from our vantage point. We're just outside of the, the large crowd here. But uh, police uh, look like one of them might have been shoved by a by one of the family members here. I mean, emotions running very high, situation very raw, very tense in a city that has been through a lot in the last few months. What is going to happen to those residents? Is there places for them to stay, the ones that did survive? There are. I mean, the community response, I have to say, has been pretty amazing. Um, As one person noted, this is a largely, you know, Muslim community, and they feel like they've got, you know, the Muslim community has gotten a lot of bad press in London as a result of the terror attacks over the past few months. But that community has been, you know, responding with a huge heart here. What a lord, you're worried about it. You can probably hear the police yep. officer. I may have to let you go. All right, uh, Jeff, we will let you go right now. Thank you very much, okay. and good luck. Jeff Semple has been with us, Europe Bureau Chief, Global News. And, of course, to find out uh, and see what you just heard, make sure you are watching uh, Global News tonight. Just a horrific scenario, as you can imagine. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke before a Senate Committee Intelligence hearing yesterday. Um, much, of course, awaited testimony, perhaps not as much as uh, as FBI, former FBI Director Comey, but certainly had uh, politicos on the edge of their seat. He denied that he had uh, any undisclosed meeting with Russian ambassador or connections with any Russian officials. To talk more about all of this, Claire Finkelstein is with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and with us now. Hello, Claire. How are you today? Fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for taking the time, Claire. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, So, uh, obviously, Jeff Sessions, uh, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, speaks yesterday. What does this add to the investigation? Well, what was important was that he said very little and kept saying that it wouldn't be appropriate for him to comment. When he was asked whether or not he was invoking executive privilege, he correctly pointed out that executive privilege was not his to invoke. It would be the president's to invoke. But then he suggested that he was protecting the president's ability to invoke executive privilege uh, around those conversations if he chose to do that. Uh, And that is a rather unusual position for someone testifying before Congress to be in. Uh, It's amazing uh, the sidestepping that's going on and uh, and the conviction that's behind it. How do we interpret all of this? How are we to decode this? Right. Well, we have a disturbing trend here, which is an attempt to impede Congress from really doing its job of engaging in the oversight that it's there to do uh, by refusing to answer questions uh, based on any contact that they've had, that individuals have had with the president. Uh, yet those conversations are very important evidence for understanding really what's what's going on here. Uh, it's a very striking contrast to hear James Comey, who was very forthright and very detailed in his testimony, and then to hear Mike Rogers and Dan Coates, and then Jeff Sessions uh, over and over again refusing to answer questions. And refusing to answer questions in many cases about material that is not classified. 
So we don't really have a legal basis for their unwillingness to answer these questions. And presumably, if there is nothing to hide and there are no concerns on their part about the president's or, or the Trump campaign's contacts with Russia, they should be willing to answer those questions and the attitude should be one of cooperation. How is Donald Trump feeling after this testimony yesterday? Uh, obviously, at one point, Sessions uh, recuse, recuses himself from the investigation, even offers to step aside. What's that relationship like now? Well, it's a very interesting question because you might say that if Sessions is recusing himself from anything involving the Russia probe, he ought not he ought to in effect recuse himself from keeping the president's secrets. So that he ought mm. not to be assisting the president to claim future executive privilege, which by the way the president has himself uh, waived arguably by having multiple conversations in which he's discussed the Russia probe and discussed his motivations for firing FBI uh, director um, James uh, Comey. So um, in the wake of the uh, testimony, I think he feels that uh, Jeff Sessions hung with him mm. uh, and did, in effect, what he would have had him do. But he then sort of floated the trial balloon over the airwaves that he might be interested in firing Robert Mueller. And that, uh, according to the New York Times, is something that he's uh, for the moment drawn back on. But it, clearly he is feeling in a tight corner. Uh, Sessions said Comey was fired over the Hillary emails. Obviously, uh, in reports afterwards, Trump has said it was over uh, the Russian investigation. How did that slip through all of this and not be hammered harder? Well, it's interesting because what's getting lost in all this, and you heard some of the senators yesterday stressing this, uh, the threat that Russia poses to the U.S. and to democratic nations across the globe is, is getting a little bit lost in all of the concern around obstruction of justice. And if you know, if I were advising the president, I would say, Mr. President, your number one obligation is to protect us from foreign enemies. Russia has shown itself to be a foreign enemy. Whatever your concerns are about your own position, you must not allow that to interfere with your duty to protect the country. And in the by by uh, partisan uh, interests of the country, Republicans and Democrats should should bury the hatchet in an effort to protect the country. But instead, we see the the infighting between Republicans and Democrats in the states really taking over and interfering with our ability to engage in uh, a full national security strategy to protect from foreign intruders. How do you get around that when there's a president that, that seems to govern through confusion? Right. Well, he, he does make use of confusion. He also clearly has difficulty sticking to any kind of disciplined protocol. His own lawyers asked him to have all of his tweets vetted by them, and he has shown himself unable to stick to that um, to that uh, restriction, even when his own ox is potentially being gored. So uh, a lot slips through. We've seen uh, an amazing difference between the president's tweets and official policy from the State Department with regard to the Qatar 
uh, tension really shows that this is an administration that is not well-coordinated internally, is not able to stick to a consistent message, and that the president's handlers are not able to rein him in, restrict him, and get him to coordinate with them. And as a result, little by little, we are learning an awful lot about the president's motivations that we wouldn't learn from a more organized White House. Uh, What do you mean by that? Expand on that. Well, what I mean is that the president has been his own worst enemy in terms of his conversation with the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office. I've had so many people say that, Claire. Why does that not filter through to the president? I mean, so many people have said on this show that he's his own worst enemy. He shoots himself in the foot. He creates his own problems. How do you address that? And and we do know that his own aides have taken to speaking to the press in order to get through to the president because when he uh when they address issues with him, he does not listen. So they have started I'm not gonna call it a leak because it's not always classified information, but they have started speaking to the press to try to draw his attention. Uh, to their point of view, and they know that he listens obsessively to the images of himself that are being portrayed on television. But as we know from the general psychological profiles of people with narcissistic personality disorder, it is very difficult for people with that disorder, as we have, I think, reason to think the president is a good example of this, um, to take in uh, self-correcting advice to take an advice that would require them to alter their way of doing things. And he is convinced, and to some extent he he won the election on this, that if he tweets out his view of things directly to the uh, to the American public, that he will stand to do better than if he allows himself to be managed and handled by those who advise him. Should we su- be surprised of, of the, the, the testimony of Jeff's uh, of Sessions yesterday, uh, considering the love in the day before and, and how he praised Trump with all the others? I think that we should not be surprised that Sessions uh, testified. Uh, I think the more telling question will be uh, whether or not he is willing to testify under closed session, which in which he would have a much more difficult time uh, asserting the president's need to protect executive privilege for him, uh, and much more difficult for him to claim that is inappropriate for him to comment. So that's one point. Uh, Mike Rogers and Dan Coates have both said that it would be inappropriate for them to comment accepting closed session, suggesting that they might actually be willing to go into closed session with Congress. There is a There is a moral obligation, there's a political obligation for these individuals to cooperate with a congressional inquiry. And our separation of powers does not function, and our system of checks and balances does not function unless these individuals are willing to cooperate. Now, whether or not Congress will have to go to court to try to compel testimony, um, that remains to be seen. But it is extremely divisive, extremely bad for the country for the stonewalling to be going on. It's very important for the president as well as for his cabinet members and his aides to be cooperating with Congress so that the country feels that 
it's getting a full and fair airing mm. of the concerns around the Russia probe. What about Jeff Sessions' performance yesterday? Uh, he seemed a little hard-nosed at times, going after people who dared insult him, whereas Comey seemed more calm and collected. That's right. Well, Comey was very eager to cooperate, very eager to give a fulsome and detailed testimony uh, to Congress, uh, to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And um, Sessions was in a position of trying not to give testimony. So he was easily flustered and he was pressed very hard. His exchange with Angus King was particularly interesting. Uh, and uh, in that uh, exchange, as well as in other exchanges, he really could be understood as asserting two bases for his willingness not to cooperate. Uh, one is the exec- protecting the president's executive privilege, which the president has not himself claimed or, or asserted. And the other was uh, Department of Justice internal guidelines or rules, which um, Jeff Sessions was not able to point to or identify. And so it comes across very strongly as sort of stonewalling. And uh, Jeff Sessions himself admitted that he felt nervous under intense questioning. When someone is is trying to protect himself from having to reveal information, uh, it would be natural that he feels nervous when pressed. Where do we go from here, Claire? How does this move forward? Are Americans at the point where they're starting to feel fatigued about this? I don't know. I think part of the country is extremely alarmed. In fact, I think the whole country is alarmed, whichever side of the aisle you sit on on this. I think that moderate Republicans who are less devoted to protecting the president are themselves expressing a great deal of concern. So the dialogue may be shifting to some extent. Uh, I think if President Trump makes the colossal mistake of attempting to fire Robert Mueller, uh, the special investigator, there will be, or special counsel, there will be a very serious uh, outcry in the country that may sway even some of the president's current defenders. Robert Mueller is a very well-respected figure. Everyone is awaiting the results of, of what we fully expect to be an impartial investigation and a detailed probe into the situation. And uh there will be and and moreover he's a republican and has historically been quite conservative and well aligned with republican politics so for the president to set himself against the independent council in that sense would really be explosive Otherwise, I think we will end up in a wait-and-see mode for uh, the results of Mueller's investigation uh, and whether or not Congress at that point will start issuing subpoenas uh, is, is another question. But I do not think that this investigation is going to end anytime soon. Uh, your thoughts on uh, uh, President Trump's reaction to what has happened in Virginia this morning? It, I, I found it odd that he he made something a statement along the lines of, um, you know, everybody in Washington is trying to do good, is trying to help the country, and we all have to stay united. And, and this from one of the per, perhaps one of the most divisive presidents in history. Uh, yeah, and it's a very, very sad thing that that occurred. E- extremely sad because here it was a, you know, as it were, a bipartisan baseball game. Yeah, 
and uh, really meant to try to bring the country together and and a game that was organized for charitable purposes. Uh, I gather that the president and vice president both had other speaking engagements, which they canceled in order to speak on this issue, and they were right to do that. Um, but it really is a reminder that President Trump uh, and his approach to these matters has been extremely uh, divisive, as you say, and uh, that we need to try to somehow bring the country together around very basic shared principles. These need not be the specific principles around immigration, around health care, but around the most basic principles of what it means to have separation of powers, of what it means for Congress to investigate a matter uh, and the powers that Congress has, of the responsibility that the president has to uh, engage with uh, Congress uh, to follow uh, the lead of the courts in suggesting that his immigration ban is unconstitutional uh, and to modify his behavior accordingly. We don't have to agree on the substance of Mm. every bit of politics, but we do have to agree on the foundational framework that holds our democracy in place. Will this incident in Virginia alter his tone at all, do you think? Does it resonate more? I mean, let's be honest, these are politicians. They're all they're all from the same they're all cut from the same cloth. They're all there for the same reason. Does it resonate when another politician or other politicians become targets that perhaps he has to do more to bring you know the divisiveness together? Perhaps for a millisecond, but I don't think hmm. it will register with him in a fundamental way because uh, if his own aides can't get to him and if his own need to protect his legal position, which could be uh, he could be an extremely hot water. It could be that obstruction of justice by firing Comey is the least of his problems when the Michael Flynn investigation is concluded uh, and some of the other investigations going on. It could uh, He could turn out to have even more serious legal problems. And if the threat of those legal problems has not been enough for him to moderate his public tweets and his public statements, uh, I think that uh, the shooting of a congressman is not going to either, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, what about time frame for this investigation? How long is this going to go? How long will this will the pressure continue on the president? Right. Well, unfortunately, there were no fewer than six investigations going on, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how you count. And uh, they're all going to take a while, but we're expecting that Robert Mueller's investigation could go on the longest. And those investigations, uh, when you do have a uh, a special counsel or special prosecutor, can go on for a year or even years. Uh, So unless the president decides, you know what, I've had enough, I'd rather go back to my um, you know, to my businesses, to my private life, as he once indeed suggested he, he might, that he didn't actually find being president so enjoyable, uh, unless he actually decides to resign because of this pressure. Uh, I think we are in this for at least another couple of years, and it really has the United States and its allies on, or historical allies, on um, 
you know, in crisis mode and escalating crisis. Hmm. So I'm very, I'm very concerned about the direction this is taking. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Paul Champ. Uh, he is from Champ and Associates. He is the student's lawyer and is with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? Uh, fine. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Are you surprised the controversy this subject uh, brings forth? Well, not really. Uh, you know, obviously, separate schools have actually been a, a controversial topic in Canada since the time of Confederation, and uh, it continues to be so in, in all the provinces that still have separate schools, as we have here in Ontario. So tell us about what happened with this particular case. Well, the issue with my client, uh, her name's Claudia Sorgini, and she went to uh, St. Teresa's Catholic School in Midland, Ontario. Uh, in her final year of uh, high school, she actually wanted to take uh, some more science classes uh, because she was an exceptional student and uh, didn't want to take uh, fill up her calendar with uh, the religious courses. Um, after some research, her family determined that there is a right under the Education Act to be exempt from religious courses, and uh, when she applied, however, she and her family were treated very badly the rest of the way. They um, had to go through a series of meetings with different officials who tried to uh, intimidate them and pressure them to drop the exemption, and then finally, when they begrudgingly allowed it, uh, they also suggested that, well, if you're getting this exemption from religious courses and activities, that applies to all religious courses and activities, including things like prom hmm. and graduation ceremonies and stuff like that. So um, it, was, it was an unpleasant year for her, and um, she's gone on to do well in university, but her and her family felt this was wrong, and that's what led to the complaint. So obviously the policies in place, uh, I just read it, Section 4213 of the Ontario Education Act, but uh, clearly there's a difference in how it's interpreted. Yeah, well, and that's that's really what the issue is. What we found in the Simcoe, uh, it's it's the Simcoe uh, Muskoka District Catholic School Board, is that their internal guidance or policy on this was that first of all, they should not admit that there was a right to an exemption. So uh, when students would ask, they would be redirected by guidance counselors who were strictly told to not even admit the existence of this right. And then if they were adamant, uh, you know, as, as the word was used in their policy, then they were directed to go to different levels of school officials going up from the vice principal all the way to principal, superintendent, director. And each one of those officials had a script that they're supposed to use to try to discourage the student from pursuing the exemption. And in our view, that was wrong. That was religious-based uh, pressure, and uh, it was contrary to the Education Act, in our view, because you don't have to provide a reason for the exemption. And it was also, in our view, contrary to the Human Rights Code. Uh, other families or supporters in the school uh, of your uh, client? Well, there was a real mix. Um, I mean, obviously, in the school itself, uh, she didn't have any support. My client didn't have any support from anyone in the school administration, and um, frankly, she was ostracized from the rest of the school uh, because, uh, you know, people were, you know, wondering, well, why are you pushing this or why are you making this an issue? Um, you know, obviously, initially, she was discouraged to just leave the school if she didn't like uh, going to a Catholic school. And, um, you know, many will say that. Many will say that. And I'll play devil's advocate yeah, here. For sure. Uh, for sure. Many will say if you don't like it, go to another place. So why not? 
Yeah, well, and that's that's basically what was said to uh, Mr. Gini at the school and by mm-hmm. many in the community. But the issue that we have here is that, first of all, uh, Catholic schools are all publicly funded, right? So they're all public uh, tax dollars. And the next thing is that, you know, particularly in the smaller communities, but I would argue in the bigger city as well, um, you, you only have so many schools around. And um, some schools, uh, you know, they might be closer to you, so there's proximity. Uh, they might have different uh, education programs or athletic programs that you prefer to then the, the local public school. Uh, you might have siblings that go there. There's all kinds of reasons why someone would want to make the choice to go to uh, Catholic high school uh, that, you know, relates to your education. And uh, at the end of the day, if it's publicly funded and you have a right under the Education Act to be exempt from the religious courses, you know, the, the school should just, you know, they should just give you the exemption on application as they should without any uh, uh, pressure or coercion. Then after that, Paul, is it a case of sure we'll agree we're just going to make you feel really uncomfortable during your stay here? I mean, in the end, that's what we're seeing, isn't it? Well, precisely, and that's what happened in this case. But in our settlement that we reached with the school and the school board, uh, they've committed that in future they will treat all students who make a request for an exemption with dignity and respect. Uh, they've committed that there will no longer be uh, meetings. You won't have to go to any meetings. You're entitled to the exemption just on an application. Um, th- also, uh, you can pick and choose which religious courses you don't ha- you, you want to take or not take. So they can't say again, oh, well, if you apply for religious exemption, it applies to everything at the school, which is religious, including graduation. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're pretty satisfied that with these changes. Uh, you know, the, the Simcoe Board... I think has effectively acknowledged what they did was wrong, and and, uh, they've committed to changing their policy. So were they in violation of the act then, plain and simply? They were in violation of that act that we just read, correct? Yeah, absolutely, in my view. As you see in the act, you know, as you read the provision, it's just on application you'll be granted an exemption. And you don't have to provide reasons. You don't have to provide an explanation or a rationale. And, and people shouldn't be required to do that. So um, that's what we're hoping, you know, that's why we're hoping other Catholic school boards across the province will take a good hard look at this case. Uh, because if and, they and don't, it's illegal, home. is it not? Like, I mean, how Absolutely. does this ha- how does this happen Absolutely. if the law is very clear? Um, you know, obviously, this board's a rogue board not doing what the act says. How many more rogue boards are there like this? Well, here's the here's another uh, part of this case, though, is that it wasn't just a rogue board. This complaint was not only against the school and the school board. We also brought the complaint against the Ontario Catholic School Trustees Association, which is a provincial body, because we found documents that they were encouraging all Catholic school boards to adopt practices and policies just like these, mm. to actively discourage students from pursuing an exemption. So they also had to agree to this settlement, and they committed to uh, sending a memo to all 29 Catholic school boards in the province saying, look, here's a new policy that's being adopted by this school board. They're doing so to comply with the Human Rights Code, and all Catholic school boards should review their own policies and uh, consider whether they're in compliance with the code. So we're uh, hopeful that will, that will link in all the, the boards across the province. Uh, do you think this lawsuit has instigated real change? Not only in this particular school, but obviously a precedence being set here uh, and, and a clear message to other boards that they got to comply. 
Yeah, well, two things. I think it's, it's raised awareness among uh, students and families. They do have this right. And secondly, it's, I hope it's raised awareness among Catholic school boards that it's wrong to pressure students to drop it. Uh, you know, I heard the statement from the Hamilton uh, Catholic School Board there, and I think it sounds great. I would agree with every word and that, you know, they, they acknowledge that on application someone gets it. But I, I'd be curious to see their policy from a year ago because I can bet that it has something in there about uh, trying to discourage the person from dropping it or asking for the reasons why they're applying for it. So it looks like maybe we've created change already. You can see uh, the point of view of the board, though, uh, whether it's complying or not, in the sense that, you know, they're trying to, to create an environment there and and basically students are coming in that don't necessarily want to participate in that environment. So then the question becomes, how watered down does this have to be before it's irrelevant? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the school, the Catholic schools are still, you know, it's it's still heavily Catholic, right? No matter what you do, there's the, uh, all the school teachers are Catholic, mm-hmm. there's the symbols and so forth. So, I mean, you're still going to be exposing the students in some way to a, a Catholic environment. And at the end of the day, if a student doesn't like that, they can go. But um, with this, uh, you know, under the Education Act, you don't have to go to the religious programs and activities. So things like liturgies and uh, catechism, stuff like that is, is generally also required in most Catholic schools. Uh, but with, with this resolution, uh, you know, it should be clearly communicated as Catholic schools that students who are attending by choice should not have to attend uh, those programs and activities. What about, and this is a little different slant to it, but what about the teachers' rights in all of this? Because uh, there's a case now where, um, you know, a teacher feels that she's being denied uh, opportunity because uh, she wants to teach in a Catholic school, but perhaps uh, is being discriminated against because of her religion, so she feels. Is that a different scenario because it's about qualifications at that point? But what if you're not teaching a, you know, a religious class? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's some interesting questions there. It's, it's quite difficult, I think. Uh, I think we're getting now into uh, you know, constitutional issues over 150 years ago about you know, why we had Catholic schools at the time that Canada was founded in 1867. Um, you know, uh, up to the date, uh, Catholic school boards in Ontario, because we still have Catholic schools in Ontario, maintain that they have the right to only hire Catholic teachers and um, you know, we have had some cases where uh, people have argued that this is discriminatory, but uh, what, what has often happened is that the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is actually uh, does not trump our 1867 Constitution, which allowed Catholic schools. So, it's a, it, you know, it's, it's a really difficult issue. Uh, it's not connected directly to this one about the right of students to be exempt from religious courses, uh, but I think it does definitely connect to the overall issue of you know, the the fairness and utility of continuing to have separate schools in Ontario, for sure. Can, Paul, can you see this only getting more complicated as time goes on? I mean, how does the board get ahead of this? I don't know. It's really hard. I mean, I, I think uh, I understand why we had Catholic schools when Canada was founded in 1867. But over the years, other provinces that had uh, Catholic school systems uh, got constitutional exemptions to lo- to no longer have a separate school system because they saw it as too expensive. So, you know, a province like Newfoundland, for example, which was had a heavily Catholic population, uh, in the 80s they got a constitutional exemption to drop it. Uh, same thing with Quebec and other provinces. So, I mean, as 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 the years and decades march on, I think the 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 public policy choice to continue to have separate schools in Ontario, I think, will 
probably continue to uh, raise questions, and, and maybe at some point that'll be revisited by uh, our political leaders of the day. At the end of the day, uh, will this come down to a discussion, either you fund all of them or you don't fund any of them? Well, 100%. I mean, uh, in Alberta, that's one way they've gone is that they do have separate schools, but then to deal with that is they've offered uh, funding to other religious schools. So, I mean, that is a choice. If, if we wanted to be, you know, truly equal and fair to all religions, we would offer some kind of funding to all religious schools uh, that, you know, that meet certain requirements, or alternatively, we don't fund any religious schools. Um, but to get to that point where we decide not to fund Catholic schools anymore would require a constitutional amendment uh, governing Ontario. So not an easy discussion to have. Well, it's, it's difficult. It's not an easy discussion to have, for sure. I mean, we all know what happened to John Tory there a few yep. years ago with his uh, proposed mm-hmm. solution to give religious funding to all schools. But I don't know, maybe... maybe you know, people are open for the discussion uh, to to uh, ending any kind of funding for religious schools, but that's that's a probably a debate for another day. Uh, can any of this? Is there any parallel between um, uh, French boards and and is the discussion the same? Uh, whether it's cost, efficiency, what have you, when it comes to French immersion and having a French, English, and Catholic as well as uh, you know an English-speaking uh, public and Catholic board. Well, with I mean, with French schools, uh, you there there is a um, uh, you know there, there's a public policy choice there uh, to do, you know to offer French immersion across mm-hmm. the school board. So uh, the school board is not required to do that, right? But if there's enough demand there and enough people want the French education, they can do that as a policy choice. With with Catholicism, it's mandatory, right? Uh, but then we get stuck in the situation like I live in Ottawa, where we've got four. Big boards, English uh, public, French public, mm-hmm. English Catholic, French Catholic, and we got uh, schools all over the place from each one of those four boards and, and school buses whizzing and crisscrossing each other. Uh, and, you know, no doubt about it, it's a, it's a complex, expensive system to, to educate our children. Uh, where do you think this discussion will be 10 years from now? Well, it, it's it's hard to say. It's obviously one that keeps coming back, uh, you know, every five or ten years or so at least. And, uh, you know, at some point maybe you know, people will take a look at it and decide whether it's worthwhile taking on or maybe we'll put it on the shelf again for another ten years. It's, it's really hard to say. I, I don't have a crystal ball on that one. Paul Champ has been with us, Champ and Associates. Uh, he, of course, represented one uh, a student uh, up in Midland who uh, had a discrepancy with the Ontario Catholic School Board. Paul, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You bet. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.